In difficult times like these, I think it's important for supporters of Israel and the Jews to try to reach out and find common ground with Satan. And sure, I know that Satan's on a mission to poison the heart of humankind until we devolve into a frenzied, demonic orgy of blood-mad butchery and self-destruction, but he's not all bad. I guess, actually, he is all bad. That's kind of his brand, isn't it? But still, those of us in a state of humble repentance struggling toward the light of God and those in a state of demonic butchery and self-destruction should try to forge a two-state solution so that some people can continue in useful work and uncertain decency while others murder them en masse. After all, didn't Jesus say, if a man should come into your home and slaughter your children and rape your women over your dead body, you should declare a ceasefire to give him time to celebrate his vicious enormity so he can make plans to do even worse? Okay, maybe those weren't Jesus' exact words, but I'm sure he would have said that if he thought of it, because if there's one thing we know about Jesus, it's that he was a really, really nice guy. So we should try to understand when someone like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib voices thinly veiled support for the massacre of innocents, even though we may find her ideas difficult to understand, because while she was speaking, the blood of martyred children gushed out of her mouth between her fangs while she transformed before our eyes into a gigantic pterodactyl-like creature and spiraled briefly up toward the heavens before being flung by all that's holy down into the deepest pit of hell, thus garbling her words and making them difficult to understand. And when literally dozens of student organizations at a Harvard University blame Israel for Hamas's brutal massacre of Israelis, shouldn't we take a moment to marvel at the creativity and industry of a prince of darkness who doesn't just reduce your children's souls to smoldering piles of crap, but actually charges you $55,000 a year in tuition to do it? And when LGBTQ plus activists express their support for Palestinian terrorists who would happily slice gay people into jerky before devouring them, shouldn't we be thankful that now we finally know that the plus stands for morons? And when people admired by some on the right, like Nicholas Fuentes and Andrew Tate, agree with, make excuses for, or soft soap, ravening satanic evil, can't we at least pause to celebrate the fact that the far right and the left have finally come together in ravening satanic evil? So by now, some of you are probably thinking, yes, I see what you're saying. How can I break free of this small-minded obsession with desperately trying to preserve even the smallest flickering spark of human decency within myself and instead begin to develop a stronger working relationship with the denizens of the lightless pit of eternal death in which all moral sensibility turns to ashes? After all, if we don't sit down at the negotiating table and they don't set the table on fire, spray the room with machine gun bullets, torture the women and children, and declare worldwide warfare against anyone who dares to oppose them, how can we ever begin to reach that middle ground between man's little island of faltering righteousness and Satan's nearly infinite realm of utter evil, a middle ground which obviously is geographically located in the midst of utter evil? Well, You'll be glad to hear that you don't need a Harvard education to become drenched in the blood of innocence, well, though apparently it helps. Even if you have an IQ no higher than Washington Post columnist Karen Adia, you can begin to open your mind to the exciting possibilities of savage and unrepentant wickedness. All you need to get started are two simple words, yes, but. That's right. If you can look upon what, after all, is only the latest atrocity in the millennia-long war of the fallen human soul against the authors of God's Bible and say just those two words, yes, but, you are well on your way to finding common ground with absolute evil in the place where absolute evil ultimately has its ground. Enjoy your stay there, your endless stay. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. 
All right, here we are once more doing our best to laugh our way through what's obviously the tribulation uh, and the end of days. I, it's a little tough on a day like this for me to plug my book, House of Love and Death, so just go out and pre-order it on your own initiative. Support the work, support the culture, support the things that I'm doing, contributing to the culture, and besides, you'll love it. House of Love and Death, the new Cameron Winter novel, and said to be the best yet by Publishers Weekly in a starred review. You also want to subscribe to the Andrew Claven, my personal YouTube channel. You'll get all kinds of content there, including my interviews, my weekly interviews, which come out every Wednesday. You can get that on the regular, wherever you get your podcast, but it's also there if you want to watch it. Last week, we interviewed Doug Brunt on his book about this 100-year-old murder mystery. Just really fascinating stuff. And this week, we're going to talk to my friend, uh, the film director, Andrew Hyatt, about his new hit film, The Blind. Uh, And he and I will talk about Christian art and how to make it better. Uh, And we'll also send you all kinds of exclusive content just because you're you and we will uh, hurl it through your window on a brick uh, wrapped in pornography so no one, you won't have to be ashamed that you're actually receiving content from the show. And you can contribute to the content there if you leave a comment on YouTube and that comment is uh, morally reprehensible uh, and, and morally disgusting is what we're going for then we will read the comment on the show because that's what we do here. Uh, Today's comment is from Tommy Litchfield. He says, what if my comment is merely morally reprehensible and not quite morally disgusting? Will it still have a shot at being read out loud? No, I'm sorry, that just falls short and we won't be able to do that. All right, let's get to today's episode, This Present Darkness. Now, Those of you who uh, know the Bible know the title of this episode comes from a verse in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the verse echoes a pre-Christian text, which is admired by both Christian and Muslim mystics, which says, as above, so below which means that material events here on earth express the nature of spiritual truths in the the heavens. And it's those truths we're ultimately dealing with, uh, though we have to deal with them in material terms. We only know spiritual truths in material terms. And the reason I titled this episode after that verse is because I've been struggling all week, wondering all week what I could say to you about these this latest issue of the Holocaust in Israel, the butchering of babies and the rape of women and the murder of civilians and the taking of hostages by Hamas terrorists who are bent on destroying the state of Israel. And also, of course, the celebration and approval and moral equivalence about those actions by politicians and students and universities and Black Lives Matter and other groups here and elsewhere, but now embedded across the West. Because, uh, you, you know, Anyone who's semi-decent, and that's the wonderful, wonderful thing about these atrocities, is you only have to be semi-decent. You don't have to be all the way decent. You could just be as decent as I am, which is not all that decent. You know, just have a little flickering spark of decency in you, and you will want to speak outrage. You want to express your outrage. You want to express your grief. Uh, We all want to scream at the people who can't seem to see that this is genuine evil right in front of their face. We want to look at, play these horrible videos of these terrible, terrible things that were done, unspeakable things, and we want to say, look, look, don't you see, don't you see? But the thing is, they have looked, and they do see, and they know, and they mean what they say. They support this. They excuse it. They justify it. Whatever argle, bargle, dithering they're going to do to hide the fact, to make it seem like this is not what they're saying, they're glad. They're glad these things happen. 
And that's, I, I want to just pause for a minute and give a shout out to Ben Sass, who I always liked as a senator, but now he's the president of the University of Florida. He just came out and said, this is evil, at, for his, speaking for his university, as opposed to Dartmouth, which put out a statement that is going to be a stain on that university forever, just like the dithering statements about the Nazis and people who didn't come out and denounce the Nazis will be stained forever. Dartmouth University will be stained forever by the things that they said about this. There are legitimate debates to be had about U.S. interests and actions and so on, political debates. But there are also issues that go beyond debates, even the most important debates, because, you know, we can debate, obviously, about whether Black Lives Matter is a respectable movement or a Maoist con game. You know what I think about it. You can, we can debate whether socialism can improve things or whether it ruins everything. You already know what I think about that. Uh, you can debate, uh, is America a Christian country in the theocratic way some people seem to mean? We can talk about different approaches to human sexuality. All, all of these things. All, we, they're different sides, and good people can have different takes on certain things. But evil can go Anywhere. The devil does not care. He can use capitalism to do evil. He can use socialism. He can use patriotism. He can use leftism. Straight people, gay people, it doesn't matter. They can all be evil. I'm sure you've heard the famous quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Russian writer who opposed the Soviets. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Evil is a spiritual entity, a thing above, but it has no power except through human hearts and hands, the things below. And this is why I try hard not to use the word evil about my political opponents, or even when I'm talking about Michael Knowles, because then when evil really shows up, you have no words left. So I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about some of the political stuff later. I'm going to get to some of the political stuff later. But I'm going to talk about something today that even Jewish people don't like to talk about. In fact, Jews hate talking about it. Even Ben is, he's, you know, he's been really strong. My heart goes out to Ben. He has, he has deep, deep ties to Israel, as many people throughout America have deep ties to their home countries. And I know this is killing him, and I love the guy, and I, I hate to see, what, I hate to know what is in his heart. I have no ties to Israel. I mean, I have distant family there. The only country I care very deeply about, really, is this one. This, this, and, the, and, of course, the Roman Empire, which I think about every day. But the only country I really care about and love is the United States of America. And I tell all my conservative friends who, because conservatives, you know, love to despair. They love to say, it's over. It's done. There's nothing we can do. We're helpless. It's all terrible. You know, that's, that's a typical conservative line. I tell them, I can't despair. This is the only place I got. And if the United States sinks into the tar pit of decadence and destruction, the last thing you're going to see as it goes down into the bubbles is my fist because I'm not going anywhere, okay? But, but while America is the kingdom I care about here on earth, there is another kingdom that I care about even more deeply, and that is, of course, the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, they know, they know that the anti-Semites of the world are right about one thing. The Jew haters are right about one thing, and that's why the Jews don't like to bring it up. And what they're right about is the Jews are special. The Jewish people are unique. They are different from every other people. A Jew isn't special. This Jew, that Jew, they, he's not special. The Jewish people are special. And there's a millennia-long effort by the rest of the human race to exterminate them for the, exactly the same thing the same reasons that make them special. And what's happening in Israel is part of that war. And I'm going to get to that and explain it in chapter one about the Jews. 
Everyone here at the office loves the GenuCell Dark Spot Corrector, and you might be asking what this product even does. Well, like the name says, if you have sunspots, dark spots, discoloration, or dry skin, the GenuCell Dark Spot Corrector will help those blemishes disappear in front of your very eyes. Kimberly from Youngstown, Ohio says, quote, my appearance has improved so much since using GenuCell. I love all my GenuCell products and my skin looks younger. Now it's your turn to feel like Kimberly, but you need to act fast because this sale is ending very soon. So take advantage of GenuCell's most popular package, which includes the beloved dark spot corrector. This package also includes the GenuCell's classic under eye treatment. You will get all these products for almost 70% off. That's 7-0. GenuCell is so confident in their products that you can try them for yourself completely risk-free. If you don't see immediate results, you get your money back. It's simple. Go to GenuCell.com slash Clavin and start looking years, even decades younger tomorrow. Say hello to the best skin you've ever had at GenuCell.com slash Clavin. That's GenuCell.com slash Clavin. At this point, you're probably just begging to know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So a couple of months ago, a friend brought her son over. His son is an Israeli, and he was a fan of the show, and he wanted to, to meet me, and he gave me a gift, which I really like. I, I don't put up a lot of knickknacks in my house because everything rattles when I walk around because I have a heavy step. But I put this on my shelf, and I kept it there, and it was uh, what's called a shofar, uh, which if you've never heard of it, it's a ram's horn, which is the battle bugle of the Jews and also a, the call to celebration in the high, high holidays. And, and I knew what a shofar was because I grew up a Jew and I grew up, went to Hebrew school and I had seen them blown and everything. But he had never told me, I, nobody ever told me this. He told me, this guy who gave it to me, told me that the reason they use a ram's horn is because it commemorates the moment when God replaced the sacrifice of Abraham's son Isaac with a ram and said, we're not doing human sacrifices here. Uh, now that you're a Jew, we're, we're going to sacrifice animals instead. And this is, when God did that, he not only set the Jews on a path away from human sacrifice and ultimately the world on a path away from human sacrifice, but he taught them to replace idols with symbols so they don't confuse the things that man makes with what God makes, but they use the things that man makes as representatives of God, as above, so below. So the young man who gave me that chauffeur was a reservist, and now he's been called up to battle, and I'm praying for him every day, and I look at that chauffeur on myself, on my shelf, and I think, that's the moment, that's the moment when God pointed the Jews away from human sacrifice and towards symbolism, that's the moment when mankind's war against the Jews began. The Jews are special and unique because of the specific nature of their relationship with God. And before those of you who don't believe in God turn me off or put your fingers in your ears and whistle Dixie or whatever it is you do to keep from hearing the truth, you do not have to believe in God to see that what I am saying is obviously and undeniably true. The Jews are a successful minority, and that makes people envious, but other minorities have been more successful at different times. The Jews are annoying, but that's the opposite of unique. Everybody is actually annoying in his own way. The only thing that's really different about the Jews is the specific nature of their relationship with God. And the reason I say you don't have to believe in God to understand this, you just have to understand that God is an inescapable entity in human psychology. No society has ever survived without God. No society until now has ever existed without God. Even atheists have to actively disbelieve in God, whereas children will come to God without anybody telling them about him. God is a facet 
of the human mind. And, and you can believe he's a fantasy. You can say, well, that's a, you know, it's, it's a fantastical fantasy, like a dragon or something. I, you know, you can believe anything you want. I believe that Aaron Judge is a fantasy and I'm the real right fielder of the Yankees. Uh, Richard Levine believes his, his manhood is a fantasy and he's a woman. You can believe anything is a fantasy, but fantasy or not, God is an inescapable entity in man's psychology. And from the moment, from the moment the Jews replaced human sacrifice with symbolic sacrifice, the Jews' relationship to God became unique. And the story of the Bible is God teaching them about, with a stick and a carrot, is teaching them about that uniqueness. You can't do what other men do. He keeps saying this to them. You can't sacrifice. All the people around you are sacrificing children and babies. You can't do it. That's for them. That's not for you. You can't worship rocks and trees and statues that you made. That's for others. You can't be slaves like other people are, you have to be free men. And all through this, all through the story of the Bible, read it, read it for yourself, all through the history stories of the Bible, the Jews fight back. They say, please, please let us be slaves. In Egypt, they give us food. Please let us kill babies. Everyone around us, well, everybody around us is doing it. Why do we have to be different? Why do we, please let us put up statues and worship them. They keep doing it over and over. And so everyone doesn't hate us. We let us, don't make us different. Let us have a king. All the kids have a king. Let us have a king too. This is where the word schmuck comes from because God keeps saying schmuck. I'm trying to make you my people stop complaining because the first enemy of the Jews is the Jews, is the Jews as God is forming them into what? They don't want to be different. Why should they? They don't want to be attacked on every side. They don't want to be hated. They don't want people saying, oh, they, they you know, peel off to themselves. They think they're superior to everyone. You know, one of my brothers once joked that the reason the Jews are called the chosen people is because no one would volunteer. <laughs> I think that's true. But over slow centuries, they are shaped into an entity that is different, that is special because they are the theater. This is why they're special. And please hear this Carefully. They're not special because they're better than other people. They're not special because they're better looking or smarter or anything like that. They're special because they are the theater in which God plays out his relationship with humankind. And again, you don't have to believe in God to understand that this is true. They are, I will explain how it's true, they are the theater in which God plays out his relationship with humankind. And people say, you know, for instance, just idiotically, people say a, a sentence that actually makes no English sense, but that's all right. People say, people say a lot of things that don't make sense. People say the Jews killed Christ. Mankind killed Christ, but the drama of Christ played out in the theater of God's relationship with humankind, which is the history of the Jews. And again, like I keep saying, I, it's, you know, he's just, God is an inescapable entity in human psychology. And when we turn away from God to evil, we start to murder Jews because as above, so below. When we turn to evil, we start to do evil below. The spiritual things are played out in this present darkness in the theater of the Jews. Now, speaking personally for a minute, the Jews are the people of my blood. I'm very proud of that. I always, I, I love it. It makes, nothing makes me laugh out loud. Like one of one of these Groyper idiots, these guys who follow Fuentes, when he gets they get so angry at me, they'll just post on X, "You're Jewish," and I always, well, that's generous of you. It's very kind, but it's not really, you know, it's really better than I deserve. And you know, it's it doesn't make any sense to be proud of your bloodline, you know, whether you're Irish or English or whatever it is, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But it's just too human. You can't get around for it. And look, I look at the Jews, and the Jews are point two 
percent of the population of the globe. Not 2%, not 2%, 0.2%. Do it on your calculator. There's none of them. There's very few of them. And they have 25% of the medical Nobel Prizes, almost as many of the science Nobel Prizes. They make all the best jokes, obviously. Their food sucks. But other than that, they are like a great, obviously a great people. But more to the point of what I am saying because I am a Christian, and I'm a very devout Christian. I mean, I would say that, you know, between writing stories and chasing my wife around and thinking about Jesus Christ, that takes up all, and I'm usually doing all three things at the same time, that takes up all of my, my mental energy. And Judaism was the religion of my Lord and Savior every day he was alive. Jesus was a faithful, believing Jewish man every day he was alive. Not one minute of his life did he belong to any other religion but Judaism. And when he cried out on the cross to God, he cried out to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Ben Shapiro. And in his death and resurrection, he opened the door to non-Jews to become God's chosen too, to become part of a growing, bigger theater of God's interaction, a theater that would ultimately cover the whole world. And he didn't do this instead of the Jews. Now, I'm not going to talk theology today because I don't want to, but I, I'll talk about what's called supersessionism or replacement theology versus dispensationalism and all that. I'm not going to do that today, but I, I just want to say that I know that there are people who believe that Christians have replaced the Jews. And there are a lot of scriptural reasons that I don't. I can show what, that that is simply not true. But again, another day. Most importantly, if you just think about it as a human being, that's a, a human thing to say. You used to be the chosen people, but now we're the chosen people instead. That's something people say. That's not what God says. God's promises are good down to the ground. You can put God's promises in the bank when he makes you the chosen people. That's what you remain. Through Christ, everyone has a chance to stop killing babies whether in Gaza or in the abortion mills of Planned Parenthood, everyone has a chance to stop worshiping idols like a flag or a movie star or money or a political candidate on either side, on any side, and start living a life through Christ in which the things in your life below represent the things above. Everyone has a chance to help build a city on earth that looks like and represents the city of God symbolically. And we don't like it any more than the Jews did. We keep, we keep doing the same thing. Please, God, let us worship our idols. You know, let us, let us worship our bodies and make them feel good. Let us kill our babies so they don't tie us down. Let us stop up the wounds of our women so they don't, you know, so we can use them for our pleasure. Let us be slaves. Let us have slaves. Let us be like ourselves. Don't make us be like you. It's too hard. It hurts too much. This is where the word schmuck comes from because God keeps saying to us, schmucks, schmucks, I'm trying to make you my people. I'm trying to let you in the door to being part of the people of God and give you the joy that's in me. And we're like, nah, I mean, uh, it can't, the joy that is in you, God, can't possibly be better than smoking dope and jerking off while watching porn. That's got to be the top thing that we can achieve. And every, you know, that's, it's just going to make our lives so much better. So I want you to notice something and think about this as you look through history. The worst attacks on the Jews, the worst attacks on the Jews always occur when the things that human beings hold dear, the idols that they hold dear, have utterly failed. When they just don't want to face the fact that nothing is going to help them but being people of God. When the things we believe in fail, the things we love, the idols we just worship fail, we turn to attacking the Jews. We sense it's that rotten God trying to drag us back into his camp, and we we go after the Jews. When the Romans had no virtue left but power, the only thing that was keeping Rome 
noble was its power, they killed the Jews. When the medieval church became corrupt, when the finances of the kings of Europe bankrupted their countries, they killed the Jews. German militarism was going to make Germany a great nation, failed utterly in World War I, wiped them really off the face, made them the, the laughing stock of the world. They paid it back, they killed the Jews. In the Middle East, if you take a look at a map, there's one little green sliver, just a tiny sliver, was Sharia law, governance, governance by Islam. It's not Islam itself, it's not the religion, but governance by Islam, the political branch of Islam, has failed. And they only have to look across you know, at, at Israel to see that any, you know, any, at any time they could have turned their countries into a green factory of science and ideas and, and people, but they didn't, so they kill the Jews. It should not surprise you, it should not surprise you one little bit that the people who believe in Marxism kill Jews, that they hate, ultimately hate Jews, or the people who make an idol out of their skin color, whether it's white or black or whatever color it is, or the people who want to butcher children because they believe they're, you know, butcher them into what looks like the opposite sex because they believe their imaginations should be more powerful than God's creation, or the people who want to make an idol out of their sexual peccadilloes, who want to shout their abortion. It should not surprise you that they are marching on college campuses and marching in the street looking for excuses for Hamas to kill the Jews. It's not a political point. We'll get to, I'm going to get to some of the politics of this in a minute, but I, I don't actually have any special original insights on how to, I think Hamas has to be exterminated, you know, and I know that's going to be ugly. That's going to be terrible. But, I, and I, it seems to me that isolationism and neoconservatism are both childish ideas. The idea that we have to fight every war, every moral war is ridiculous, but also the idea that we can just huddle at home and the darkness will go away. That's not gonna happen either. But as we make those choices, we have to remember that what happens here below is a reflection of what, is, is either a reflection of what happens above or it will what happen, it'll be a reflection of what happens even further down below. Because since the resurrection, the whole world is God's theater now. All of us have a chance to be grafted on to the olive tree of Judaism, and the world will either look like heaven in the end, or it's going to look like hell, and you will either look like an angel or a devil in the end. And the one thing about this horrible moment, and just in terms of this reality, this is what I know about it. This is the one thing I know. When I see Jewish babies beheaded, when I see Jewish civilians murdered at a music festival, when I see Jewish women raped in the worst assault on Jews since the Holocaust, that's that's not a political statement. That's not a religious statement. That's a statement that comes directly from the darkness of the human heart. And when I see those things, the voice that I hear in my ears is the voice of Moses when he said to his people, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. As you probably know, I love a nice dinner with a drink or even a nice drink with my dinner, but sometimes these post-dinner drinks can lead to a not-so-nice morning the next day. That's where Z-Biotics comes into play. Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works when you drink. 
alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in your gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics is designed to produce an enzyme that will break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. My producer Danny loves Zbiotics. He always wakes up refreshed and ready to go after a night out. Others around the office also love Zbiotics for those Thursday night football games so they can still have a few beers and not miss work the next day. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol and drink responsibly. That's always good advice. Get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash Clavin to get 15% off your first order with code Clavin at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Clavin and use the code Clavin at checkout for 15% off your first order if, and only if, you know how to spell Clavin. There are no E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. There are no E's in Clavin. Chapter two, clearing up some lies. So here are some general political things I want to talk about. You know, there's a trick in Hollywood that I've, I've brought this up before, and a lot of times people don't quite get it. Let me see if I can explain it as clearly as possible. I think it's, it's kind of what Nietzsche called the transvaluation of values. When Hollywood makes its left-wing propaganda, it's very hard to make left-wing propaganda because everything leftists believe isn't true. And stories have to be true in some way to reach the human heart. And so what they do, what Hollywood does when it makes good left-wing propaganda is they tell true stories, but they put the wrong people in the wrong roles, okay? The best example for this is, is V is for Vendetta, if you've ever seen this. It's a story of oppression. It's a kind of a science fiction-y, you know, futuristic comic book story of oppression. But in the oppression, it's parliament, because it takes place in England, it's parliament and Christianity that are the oppressors, and Islamists and anarchists are the freedom fighters. Now, in real life, it's kind of the other way around. I mean, parliament may be good and bad, but it's the mother of parliaments. It's the mother of modern free governance. That's what parliament actually is in truth. And Christianity is the only reason anybody believes in freedom anywhere. Judeo-Christianity, I should say. But still, it is through Christianity that anybody believes in freedom. But what they do in Vias for Vendetta is they make Islamism a, a beautiful, wonderful religion that doesn't, wouldn't, wouldn't hunt down a gay man ever. You know, there's a gay guy who says, I, I can appreciate the beauty of the Quran without believing in it. And they think, yeah, you can until they find you and then you're in trouble. And, and, I'm, and I'm not picking, I don't mean to pick on normal, everyday, pious, religious people. That's none of my business, okay? What I'm talking about is in the time that Vias for Vendetta was made, it was not Christians who were the problem. It was not parliament in the West that was a problem. It was, in fact, Islamists and anarchists who were the problem. And yet they're the heroes of Vias for Vendetta. So they told a true story because oppression is bad and freedom is good, but they put the wrong people in the wrong places. They did this also in the American uh, version of House of Cards. Uh, the Democrats were always cutting taxes and worrying about people's freedom. That's the Democrats for you, right? As if, you know, the values were right. The thing, they knew what was good and what was bad, but they had the Democrats do the good things instead of the way it is in real life. So they, they do this with Israel. The left, they keep saying Israel is an apartheid state. I've never heard a single news person challenge that. In fact, newsbusters put together a supercut of the media backing the terrorists over the years. Here's just a sample, cut one. This morning, a top former Israeli general went on national radio in Israel to say there has been absolute apartheid in the occupied West Bank for the past 57 years and even compared the situation there with Nazi Germany. Palestinians are looking around and, and thinking, 
who is going ever to protect us. Hamas is seeing a wave of popularity after this latest round of violence presenting itself as the sole defenders of the Palestinian people. Farah never supported Hamas before, but does now. Violence comes from despair. In Gaza, many see these attacks as justified. Many Palestinians believe dancing with death is the only way to show their desperation. Politicians think they can just ignore the context in which all of this is happening, the fact that Israel is an occupying power. When you have mandatory conscription uh, and service in Israel, effectively the Palestinians will say it's war against everyone because everyone's a soldier. You could hear it in there, you know, when they say the Jews are the the Jews are the Nazis, you know. When you come to think of it, it isn't really the people who are being gassed, the bad guys. Israel is not an apartheid state. That's a lie. In Israel, a Muslim can become a member of parliament and has over 100 times. The Knesset, they call it. It, it ha- that's happened more than 100 times. There's been more than a Muslim on the Supreme Court, Muslim beauty queens. Muslim. When you're in, the, in Israel and it's time for Muslim prayers, all around you, you see Muslims put down their prayer mats and, and, and pray in peace without being, uh, you know, hassled or, or attacked in any way. When you compare that to the way Jews and Christians are treated in, for instance, Iran, where they're clinging to life and they're so poor they can't escape, but they're persecuted all the time and their lives are, you know, are not worth a nickel, you know, that's an apartheid state. What people mean when they throw that word around is that Israel, in those areas that it has occupied, been forced to occupy, after Arab aggression made it necessary for their safety and survival, they have occupied places, life for the locals in those places is hard. Now, whose fault that is, is a fair issue to discuss, but I'm not quite sure that it's actually Israel. I'm not sure that if, in fact, the people there wanted to build a better life, they couldn't do it, or that Israel would stop them from doing it. But still, still, even now, with Israel attacking Gaza, you know, it's, it, it's the Egyptians who reportedly won't let people, the civilians escape. The Israelis aren't trying to kill them. The point, the point I'm making is that if you want to look for apartheid, right, if you want to look for apartheid, you look in the Arab world, you will see something much, much more like, um, like apartheid. If you mean the occupied territories that Israel had to take, just remember this. You know, if, if you think that that's apartheid there, just remember this. Israel gave Gaza back to the Palestinians, gave it back to the Palestinians. And what did they do? They turned it into a fortress from which to attack Israel. That's what they did with it. They didn't build a political entity there that could work. They elected Hamas to lead it, a terrorist to lead it. So, you know, Israel should never, as far as I'm concerned, should never give a pebble back to anybody ever again. If they have to conquer any territory, they should just keep it. Israel is not, in fact, an apartheid state. Now, another thing is Israel is not a colonial state. This has become a routine assertion on college campuses because college kids are now taught to be stupid and ignorant, and they think colonialism is bad. I don't even think colonialism is so bad, but still, still, great powers have colonies, right? When you have a colony, what does that mean? Well, this is a French colony. France is powerful. They're so powerful that they have now moved out, moved outward and taken over, you know, another country and called it their colony. It works for them. England uh, had colonies. We were one of once England's colonies. Germany had colonies. Who's the colonizer in Israel? The Jews are among the indigenous people of the land and the only one of those indigenous people who ever had a kingdom and established polity in ancient times. And you can say, well, the ancient Israelites came in and took the land from the Canaanites, but the Comanches took land from the Apaches. You know, I mean, the indigenous people fight 
you know, all people fight. Indigenous people fight. But the Israelis are not colonists. They are an indigenous people. Whereas if you look at some of the Arab-occupied lands of Africa, like Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, those are Arab colonies conquered around 600 AD. That's, you know, which again, I'm not anti-colonialist. If they're running them better, that's fine with me. But in fact, this one tiny little shoebox in the middle of the desert, this country, Israel, is not a colony in any way, shape, or form. And so those are two, two lies that are routinely spouted by these clowns that just aren't true. They just are not true. And finally, this is not a political dispute. Hamas Hezbollah, Iran have all pledged the destruction, the extermination of the Jews and the rest of us. You know, Jack Carr, he was on this program once. He's the author of the Terminal List book I just really enjoyed. He was a Navy SEAL before he started writing, and he put out a post on X saying in the Middle East they have a slogan, on Saturday we kill the Saturday people, namely the Jews, and on Sunday we'll kill the Sunday people, namely, namely the Christians. This is a war of conquest and extermination. There's no political bargaining here. There's no, what's, what's the bargaining position? You only kill half of us. You only kill some of our women. You only behead some of our babies. There's no, there's no military objective to, to the kinds of things that they did, right? The news people, the news people, because they want to, they want to understand this. They don't want to just say, oh, I'm, I'm looking at evil. They don't want to say, oh, I'm looking at a representation of the spirit of spiritual evil. They keep saying, well, the motive here was to keep Saudi Arabia from participating in the Abraham Accords. Was it? I mean, really? Is that, you know, is that why you cut off the heads of babies? Is that why you do that? Is that, you know, I mean, <laughs> you couldn't think of another way to do it? No, no. You are de- when you desecrate bodies. When you spit on the woman you just raped, you know, that's that's savagery. The point of that savagery, the the act is the motive. You want to be doing that. You want to be doing that thing. The only purpose is is terror. It's the destruction of the Jewish state as a prologue to the slaughter of the Jews, both there and here, and the Sunday people come next. And of course... You know, of course, that's not all Muslim people. It's these people. There's no, there's no political point here. And one final point about this, one final general political point. During World War II, the Allies firebombed the civilian population of Dresden, Germany, and killed tens of thousands of civilians. And they also nuked the civilian population of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, I've heard people of goodwill debate those actions, and you can... I, I've heard arguments on both sides. Myself, I think, you know, that, that's what war is like. I'm, I, I, well, I'll get to that in a minute. But you can debate whether you should have dropped a bomb on Hiroshima. You can debate whether you should have firebombed Dresden, in, given the information you had at the moment. But the debate can't include a justification of the Nazis or the Japanese who were the aggressors and who were genocidal lunatics at the time. You can't say you can't strike back against them. You can say in the course of striking back against them, you did something wrong, but that's a different argument to make. I'm, I am not a neocon, despite what some of these corporates keep saying about me. I went to Afghanistan. I was embedded in Afghanistan. I think it was 2008, and I came back and I said immediately, this war is a mistake. That We should not have gone into Afghanistan. We shouldn't be there. And 
I hate, I don't talk a, a lot about how much I hate war and how much as I've grown older, I hate it more and more because it's just virtue signaling. The reason it's virtue signaling, it doesn't matter if I hate war. I hate aging. I hate death. I hate going to the dentist. Some things have to be done and they're terrible and they are just awful. I, you know, it, it, there's nothing good about war. It doesn't mean good things can't come out of it, but there's nothing good about war itself. And it doesn't make you moral to suggest impossible moral sounding ideas that make real life outcomes Worse, wars have to be fought, and when wars are fought, children, women, civilians get killed as collateral damage. You're not trying to do it. You're trying to get them out, but you can't go into some place that's packed with people like Gaza and not kill civilians. And so these are just some set-the-record-straight comments. There's no apartheid. Israel is not an apartheid state. You cannot make that argument. There is not. It's not a colonial state. That's a ridiculous argument. And... There is no negotiating with people who want to exterminate anybody. There are people who want to exterminate a people, a nation. There is no negotiating with those people. That's not a political matter. And we will turn to some more politics in just a second. HR people don't always get enough recognition. I know I don't recognize them from the small business owners growing their team to the HR directors hiring hundreds across the nation. They have a truly tough job, but ZipRecruiter, can help make the whole hiring process faster and easier. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology works for you to identify people whose skills and experience match the job you're trying to fill. ZipRecruiter saves you time by letting you easily invite your top candidates to apply to your job so they're more likely to apply sooner. ZipRecruiter is trusted by millions. In fact, over 3.8 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Hiring heroes. Let ZipRecruiter help make your job easier. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin to try ZipRecruiter for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. You might want to hire someone to explain that Clavin is spelled K-L-A-V-A-N. Chapter three, the invisible hand of Barack Obama. Now, another thing I don't want to do is I don't want to extend, you know, say everyone I dislike is a Nazi. Everyone I dislike is to blame. You know, I, you, I've told you what I think of Andrew Tate. I, I'm baffled by people following this guy. But that doesn't make you a terrorist. And I'm totally mystified by the elevation of Nick Fuentes, this hateful little dweeb. I don't understand why people follow him. But if you want to follow him, go, go ahead. It doesn't make you a terrorist. But there is one troubling act of strain in our political culture that is part of what's happening, is part of this, this darkness that we're seeing, uh, this evil that we're seeing, and that is the anti-colonialism of Barack Obama. One of the reasons I always pay special respect to Dinesh D'Souza, that's obviously not because of who he is, just look at him, but, but I, I pay respect to him because he was imprisoned, basically, and legally persecuted, not because he violated a minor campaign law, which he did, which is usually draws a, a fine of something like $15,000, but he was put in custody because he wrote an article in Forbes magazine. Now, he made that article into a movie, but the movie was kind of big and overblown and very melodramatic, but the f article in Forbes was simply true, and it was about the fact that Barack Obama was trying to appease the spirit of his scoundrelly anti-colonial father, and Dinesh wrote in that article, this philandering, inebriated African socialist, referring to Obama's father, who raged against the world for denying him the realization of his anti-colonial ambitions is now setting the nation's agenda through the reincarnation of his dreams in his son. 
Okay, and Dinesh went on to talk about that this is why Obama did a lot of the things that he did, because he was an anti-colonialist and he held America as a colonial nation. So he felt he could raise taxes in an exorbitant way because his father said you can tax people 100 percent because they got their money from colonized people. He wanted NASA to reach out to Muslims. He said this is a very important thing. It's not important at all. There's no reason not for NASA to reach out to Muslims. Why he supported building a mosque on the site of 9-11. And we knew Dinesh was telling the truth because the minute he wrote that article, Maureen Dowd of the New York Times called him racist. There was not one racist word in it. It was not, I mean, she had to come up with this tangled logic. So we knew right away that he was in trouble because they said he set off the racist bell not, again. And, and Dinesh himself is some version of Brown. I mean, he's like an Indian guy. So he's not, there's nothing racist about him, but he was just dead on. And I want you to, I want to talk about just for a minute a tweet that went out, a post on X that went out from Najima Sharif, who is a freelance writer. She's written for Teen Vogue and InStyle. And she said, when this, these atrocities happened, the beheaded babies, the raped women, they killed civilians. What did you all think decolonization meant? Vibes, papers, essays, losers. Not like this, you say. You say it shouldn't be like this. Then like what? Show us, LOL, over 100,000 people liked that tweet, including Washington Post columnist Karen Adia, who was or is, I'm not sure which, the global opinions editor of the Washington Post, where democracy dies in a darkness so dark you cannot see the slightest morality because it's the darkness of the global opinions of the Washington Post. Anti-colonialism is the savagery we saw in Israel. It is vengeance. It is rebellion. It is violent murder and death and terror. Obama's anti-colonialism expressed itself in his almost obsessive pursuit of this nuclear deal with Iran, which clearly, despite what he and the press said, would not have hampered Iran's acquiring a nuclear weapon. Here is what Bibi Netanyahu said about it at the time, cut three. This deal has two major concessions. One, leaving Iran with a vast nuclear program. And two, lifting the restrictions on that program in about a decade. That's why this deal is so bad. It doesn't block Iran's path to the bomb. It paves Iran's path to the bomb. Right. So Donald Trump rightly overturned that deal. Biden has been groveling to the Iranis to try to get it back in place, not just by paying them the $6 billion for hostages, which people on both sides of goodwill are trying to get him to uh, freeze it. And maybe he has secretly, but he hasn't said so. And, and by weakening the sanctions against Iran. So Iran has been making billions and billions of dollars off oil they're not supposed to be allowed to sell. And you may remember I, there was an article in, uh, uh, in the tablet um, Obama biographer David Garrow was interviewed by David Samuels of the tablet. And the big news at the time was that Obama had gay fantasies. Remember that? It's an excellent piece in The Federalist by Mark Hemingway. Hemingway did an excellent job in which he points out and reminds us that there was another part of that article in which Samuels said Obama's hostility to American exceptionalism also seemed linked to his hostility to Israel, or more specifically to America's identification with Israel. Hemingway uh, goes back 
and charts the clues of anti-Semitism that the media whitewashed. Jeremiah Wright, Jeremiah Wright was an anti-Semite, and, and Obama went to his church and then made that stupid speech. I remember the press, he made that speech about, well, this is just the black, the voice of black spirituality or whatever he said. And David Brooks of the New York Times said, well, the speech was a symphony. It was a symphony of lies. It was just, they just could not grasp the fact that he was going to an anti-American, anti-Semitic church because he was anti-American and anti-Semitic because he was anti-colonial in service to his dead father. Then there was uh, Obama's friendship with Rashid Khalidi, who was, uh, you know, a spokesman basically for the PLO. Uh, and he went to a dinner celebrating Khalidi, and there was a videotape of it that the Los Angeles Times gave, wrote about, but would not release the video because they didn't want to be accused of doing journalism while being a newspaper. It was one of the worst instances of journalistic corruption I can remember, but there were plenty of people praising Khalidi there. And, it, and Obama had a, an especially close and warm relationship with this PLO terrorist supporter. And finally, and this is the big one, there was Obama's embrace of this guy, Robert Malley. Uh, I'm reading partly from Mark Hemingway's piece. In December of 2007, the Obama campaign put out a press release listing Malley as a campaign advisor. This is Robert Malley, cut six. Hezbollah and Hamas, the two most prominent groups, although the Sadrists in Iraq also fall in that category. It's a mistake to only think of them in terms of their uh, terrorist violence dimension. Their social political movements, probably the most rooted movements in their respective societies. Hamas, not a majority among Palestinians by any means, but very deeply rooted. It's been, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it was born in the first uh, Palestinian Intifada in the, in the 1980s. It has deep loyalty. It has, it has a charity organization, a social branch. It's not something you can defeat militarily either, and people need to understand that. There's so much misinformation about them. I mean, I, I, I speak to them, my, and my colleagues speak to them. Now, we may disagree with them, but they have their own rationality. That's the one thing to understand. These are not, none of them are crazies. They may do things that we consider to, to belong to a different realm of rationality, but within their own system, it's often very logical. <laughs> they, cut, they cut their heads off babies, but aside from that, if you can overlook that, they're just lovely, lovely people. See, he's a terrorist supporter. And after the backlash to Mali, uh, says Mark Hemingway in this Federalist piece, which I highly recommend to you, the Obama campaign issued a statement saying Mali was not officially on the campaign. He was providing informal advice, despite supposedly not working on the Obama campaign. In May, the Times of London reported that Mali had been ejected from the campaign's Middle East advisory group after they learned he had meetings with Hamas. After supposedly being sacked from the campaign twice shortly after Obama was elected, it was revealed Mali had been dispatched to Egypt and Syria on behalf of the administration. Then he became Biden, the Biden administration's special envoy to Iran, and then he was fired again. This time it was serious enough that he lost his security clearance and was being accused of mishandling classified info. Only in the past few weeks have the real facts come into sharper relief, and not all of them, by the way, but we have heard Robert Malley helped to fund, support, and direct an Iranian intelligence operation designed to influence the United States and allied governments, according to a trove of purloined Iranian government emails. This and the fact that our borders are open, the fact that our borders are flooded. So today has been declared a day of rage by Hamas. We don't even know who's here. I just heard a police spokeswoman on an NYPD spokeswoman on Fox as I was coming in just saying, we just don't know who's here because the border is open. All of these things, you know, I know there are a lot of conspiracy theories around, and these days about 30% of them are absolutely true. About 30% of the things that look like conspiracy theories that you can't believe they're, they could be true turn out to be true. 
One of these conspiracy theories is that Biden is running the country. Now, I don't know, uh, Biden, I'm sorry, that Obama is, that would be too ridiculous, that one of these conspiracy theories is that Obama is now running the country. Now, I don't know if that's literally true, but clearly Biden is a bowl of mashed potatoes. He's not running anything. Obama has never left Washington, which is very strange for a former president. And he himself has bragged that most of, at least half of Biden's uh, staff is his. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who is in Israel, is an old high school pal of Robert Malley. And he's the guy who's saying, oh, don't, you know, yes, go into Hamas, but don't kill anybody. Don't hurt anybody just because it's a war. And Obama kept a thunderous silence after these atrocities until he realized he was going to have to do what he always did when he got caught, when he got caught using the IRS to silence his political opponents. Heads will roll. Oh, there was not, there was no corruption there. You know, he always has that big talk that, that you're hearing from Biden now. Let's wait a couple of days. Let's wait a couple of days when Hamas's existence is actually threatened. And let's see if the Biden administration still supports this and whether Obama uh, basically advises them to support the destruction of Hamas, which has to go forward. Again, you know, I reject anti-colonialism, but Israel is not a colonial power, which means if you are accusing them of anti-colonialism and if you are celebrating their destruction and if you are engineering their destruction by supporting their enemies in Iran who are not part of the community of nations, no matter how we treat them, they are a terrorist country. If you are doing that, your purpose is exterminating Jews. All right, final chapter, Cain and Abel. It seems uh, appropriate to end this episode with a story from the Old Testament. It's one of the most important stories. It's one of the most important stories ever told and one of the most profound stories ever told. I'm a writer of murder mysteries, uh, like the House of Love and Death, which you should get. Uh, but I'm, so I'm especially connected to the story of the first murder when Cain killed Abel. Abel. But I want to quote a line from John Steinbeck, his great novel, one of the great American novels uh, called East of Eden, in which the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel kind of replayed in 1920s America. Uh, and one of the characters says of the Cain and Abel story, these 16 verses are a history of humankind in any age or culture or race. And I think that's exactly true. Um, now, with stories of this basic, there's no one interpretation of Cain and Abel. You know, that people say, you know, I figured out what this means. No, this is a, an Ur story. It is a, a story that describes all of human life, and each interpretation is just a way of looking at it, like looking at something so you get uh, fuller dimensions. Each in, true interpretation gives you another side of the story, like looking at the elephant from all sides. But Cain, as you know, was the first child born of Eve after Eve, Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden, and Abel was born later, though we don't know whether he was a twin or not. And the, the Hellenistic uh, Jewish philosopher Philo, uh, who was fond of very symbolic readings of Scripture, said that the reason that Abel, Cain is older than Abel is that vice is older than virtue, that we come out with our desires, our fleshly needs, and then um, we only develop spirituality later. Christopher Hitchens, the great atheist writer, a terrific writer, but he would say, if, if the world were destroyed, is the first thing that you would need to know that Christ was born of a virgin? And I always thought, no, the first thing you need to do is find fresh water. <laughs> you know, but, but after you establish a civilization, it might be good to know about Jesus Christ. So Abel was a shepherd, Cain was a farmer, and they brought sacrifices to the Lord, and the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry 
and his face was downcast. Now, it's important. We don't know why the Lord accepted one offering and not another. And, of course, there are all kinds of theories and meanings read into it. But we don't know. But what we know, we know it wasn't because of fruit versus sheep, right? That's not what it was about. It was an internal problem with the people making the sacrifice. And while we don't know what was wrong with Cain, Cain knew. See, Cain was angry, and God says to him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so think about this in real life. You and a friend go to get a job, and he gets the job, and you don't. And you say to yourself, why did he get that job? I don't even like, you know, he dresses badly. I, you know, he cheats on his wife. He's a bad guy. He's not as smart as I am. He's all these things. Instead of turning around and saying, what was wrong with me? How can I make myself better? How can I make myself so good that the next time I go out for a job, they have to give it to me? You know, that's that's the thing. If you are putting that off on other people, you know, there's a, a famous uh, philosopher, Rene Girard, who says that uh, a desire is mimetic, that we desire to have what other people have. And, and there's... Uh, to me, a partial truth to that, but it's also true that we desire to have what other people have, but because we don't want to look at ourselves and see what we should have. It's possible that Cain was a much greater man than Abel, and God expected more of him. Maybe he just thought, well, Abel's a dope, but he's doing a good job. He's given me the sacrifice. His heart is pure. Cain, I want to be a great man, but Cain didn't think of it, so he took Abel out, and he killed him. And this is a story from the Jews about the Jews given to all of us because the Jews are the theater in which God plays out his relationship with humankind. And, you know, when when God goes to Cain and he says, where's Abel? Cain, of course, says, am I my brother's keeper? And God's answer is, what have you done? What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse. That line reminds me of the great line of from Crime and Punishment, the formative, one of the formative novels of my life, when Raskolnikov confesses to murder, his girlfriend says to him, what have you done to yourself? And this is another quote from Philo, who says, when Cain uh, rose up and killed, when it says in the Bible that Cain rose up and killed Abel, it should say he rose up and killed himself. And when God talks about the blood of Abel crying out from the ground, he uses the plural because what he means is all of the things that would have come out of Abel's life, the families, the tribes, the nations that would have come out of Abel's life are now gone, but they live in him and justice lives in him. So here's the thing, you know, the Jews have a special relationship with God. And again, you don't have to believe in God to know that. And I think that a lot of people look at them and they say, why do the Jews have so much? Why do they have so much power? Why do they run Hollywood? Why do they, you know, why are there so many writers? And why is this, instead of thinking to themselves, how can I get a piece of this? How can I be what I'm supposed to be? How can I be all the things that I am supposed to be that God expects of me? And the reason is because that entails giving things up and doing things better and being better and having more discipline and not worshiping idols and all the things that you love, putting them second to the truth of God. All of those things are what the Jews have been told to do. And they failed because no Jew is special. Not any, there's not a, a Jew is not special, right? So they fail all the time. But the Jews as a people are playing out that drama for all of us. And now, hopefully, those of us who are faithful Christians have joined in that theater. And you can tell the ones who have because they're being persecuted too. They're being persecuted too. You know, 
One more Bible story before I end this, the biblical story of Jacob. He wrestled with the angel of God, and that's when his name was changed to, changed to Israel, which means those who struggle with God. The Jews are the theater in which we play out man's struggle with God. And now that struggle belongs to all of us, and that's why I stand with Israel. Some of you may know my daughter, Faith Moore, but you may not know she's my daughter because she's lovely and talented and intelligent, uh, but she has also written a new novel. She, along with being a wife and mom, she has somehow gotten time, found time to write a novel. She is the author of a new rendition of the age-old Christmas classic, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Hers is called Christmas Carol, Carol with a K. It's a modern twist on the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, except with a female protagonist in a world where boss babes are championed at the expense of family. Faith is making the case that having what matters is far better than having at all. And I, I have to tell you, I'm reading the book. I'm almost finished with it. It is just charming. And if you think it's a lecture or a political tract, it's absolutely not. It is a delightful, delightful story. And I'm not just saying it because I'm incredibly proud of her. I am. But Christmas Carol is available for pre-order. And you only, you, if you look at the sample, if they give you a sample of it, it, you'll see it's hilarious. And it's really well written and really well done. Order yours on Amazon or wherever you get your books today. All right, Clavin Clapbacks. The problem was all caused by crooked Joe Biden and Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah! <laughs> Truer words were never spoke. From Wendy, reacting to last week's show, which was called Bang Your Wife and Save the Country. What is this, a frat house? Ladies are present. Did you run that whole bang your wife line past Mrs. Clavin before spouting it? Wives, as voluptuous, tender, nurturing, and grounded as we are, should not be confused with inanimate object. Objects, better ways to express the sentiment might include delight your wife with your prowess and skill. It's not the word. It's the idea that you're the only one whose motives or sensations are involved that is one-sided and selfish. A wife signed, a wife who's been waiting 18 years for him to catch a clue. You know, Wendy, I got to tell you something. When I was going out with Mrs. Clavin, since you bring up Mrs. Clavin, when I first went out, I think it was our second date, maybe, I said to her, this one thing I have to explain to you. Uh, that whenever we're talking, I will always say the funniest thing I, I can think of. So if you're going to be offended, th you, this is a good time to pull out now. And, and Mrs. Clavin has been laughing ever since because she knows where my heart is and she knows <laughs> that I just say things that make me laugh, like bang your wife and save the country. So develop a sense of humor, Wendy. Come on, come on. And, and look, and tell your husband to, to be nice. All right. <laughs> Jonathan says, you frequently say it took 50 years for the left to take over the country. It will take 50 years for us to take it back. I want to point out a flaw in this thinking. When we run the country, things work, and the left knows they have nothing but time to work their system. When the left runs the country, they run massive deficits, ignore the Constitution, and institute a two-tiered system of justice. How confident are you that there will be a country left to save in 10 years, let alone 50 years? Do we really have the time to take a reformer approach? Uh, signed, John. John, that's a, a perfectly intelligent and reasonable objection. And of course, uh, you know, I, I think about it myself all the time. And my answer to you is I do not think we have a choice. It's basically, see, the, the metaphors that people keep using is we got to blow it all up and start again. We got to spray it with our fire hose and then start, you know. And all I, I'm telling you is if we do that, you will not get the country that you are trying to save. You'll just get a new kind of tyranny. And it doesn't matter to me whether the boot that's stepping on my neck is a right boot or a left boot. I don't care. I want to live in a free country. So a better metaphor 
a better metaphor is that somebody needs surgery and you have never gone to medical school. And you say, well, you know, we got to save them, so let's, I'll just cut them open, you know? No, first you have to go to medical school. And so if we don't win back the culture, if we don't establish redoubts in the culture, um, we're, we're just not going to win because we can't, for instance, save free speech without allowing, without teaching people that they should not say that Hamas is all right. They should not say that killing babies is all right as long as you do it to Jews. You, you have to and inculcate that in people culturally and, get, and inculcate freedom in their minds instead of, which is what the left has been doing to our college students all this time, is in, you know, putting in their minds all this stupidity and, and horror that has turned them into horrific fascists celebrating what is essentially Hitler. They call Trump Hitler and they're out there saying, yay, kill the Jews. I mean, that's, that's what they've done and it took them 50 years to do it. So we don't have a choice. But the other thing is, is in your imagination, um, everything is is over, and they've won every you know every piece of ground. But that's not true. There are still plenty of pieces of ground that belong to us. There's still plenty of victories that we have won. Uh, we we have more conservatives on the Supreme Court. We still have people, even in the Democrat Party, there are people of conscience. They they don't understand yet what what's happening. I saw Jake Tapper say, uh, you know, after he saw all the leftists celebrating the death of. of Jews, the murder of Jews, I thought I'd say, this has been kind of a wake-up call. And I thought, well, now that you're awake, Jake, how about a cup of coffee? You know, <laughs> glad you finally see it. But the thing, the thing is, there are good people out there who will follow suit and who will see, for instance, when uh, DeSantis finishes reforming the colleges in Florida like he's doing, they'll see that these are, be- are better colleges than Harvard. Harvard char- may charge more, but the coffee is better in Florida. And like, I think that that's, that is what uh, where the chances lie. So the country is not l- lost. That's the hysterical part. That's the part the conservatives get hysterical about. It's all over. We can't wait. We got to do it now. We got to blow everything up. That's panic. You got to keep your anger, you know, in a suitcase. You got to stay calm, stay cool, and do the things that have to be done, winning where you can, and, and, and you know, fighting back where you have to. And that's, that's the only, it's the only choice. It's the only choice. But I do know the dangers. You're not being dumb about it. What you're saying are true dangers. I got to stop there unless you are a member. If you want to become a member, go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and we'll give you all kinds of deals. Just put my name in there and things will just pour out of your computer and you will become a subscriber. If you're already a subscriber, come on over to Member Block.